0: So I've invited uh, our friend, a uh, regular tender here at Restoration, to come and preach the word to us. Uh, Chuck is uh, a retired Lutheran pastor, um, and I'm just delighted to hear from you on this Trinity Sunday. Thank you. <laughs> Let me pray for you. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, I, I thank you for Chuck, Lord, and I thank you for his heart, for your word. I pray, Lord, that you would speak through him this morning. Open our hearts that we might hear from you. In your name and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father Almighty and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Rick has just prayed, but I'm going to pray too. (laughs) Oh, wonderful Father in heaven, how we bless you for the opportunity to come together once again today, the sisters and the brothers, in Jesus' name, mindful of your promise. Wherever two or three are gathered there in that name, they may count on the King of Heaven to be among them. We pray, O God, that you would please come and visit us today as we visit with one another. Speak, we pray, in Jesus' wonderful name, amen. So let me just say as kind of a caveat to begin with that I I wasn't expecting to see Rick here today, actually. He was thinking... He was thinking to be fishing, I do believe. But uh, his fishing partner was his dear dad, who has, uh, lives in Nebraska, or Kansas, and has fallen ill with COVID. So the fishing trip got canceled, as I understand. Postponed. Postponed. It's coming. So Rick thought it could be a good idea to stay home and uh, clean out the garage and uh, let the guest preacher preach anyway. <laughs> So, uh, if Rick were preaching today, I'm just guessing that he would point out that we have, uh, with this Sunday, arrived in the very middle of the church, in the church year. Rick likes things like that. The church year is comprised of uh, two great arcs, we might say. Maybe you've noticed. There is, on the one hand, the great arc of our Lord's life and ministry, beginning with Advent and on through Christmas, then we have, you know it, Epiphany and Lent and Holy Week, Eastertide, Ascension, and then Pentecost we celebrated last Sunday. And then there's the great arc of the life of the Church, the many Sundays that follow Pentecost, and Rick will sometimes call them ordinary time, in which we examine the themes of life and discipleship that make us a Christian people. These are the Sundays that follow now and from today on until uh, an, of Advent time. And today we stand just at the middle of the whole thing. Today we stand just at the middle. You might say kind of, it's like the hinge, it's like the hinge of the year I have often thought. And here at the hinge of the church year, at the very center, we have what may uh, at first brush seem kind of a surprise. It's a somewhat funky, old-time feast without so very many contemporary enthusiasts, although once upon a time it had a lot, commemorating a doctrine that you may have yourself thought sometimes uh, obscure. It's the feast of the Holy Trinity today. Now, if you've attended an Anglican church for a while, or maybe even just one Sunday, Uh, you have uh, noticed that we have lots of feasts and celebrations in our tradition. Typically, they commemorate persons or maybe events in the life of persons, an annunciation, let's say, or a death and resurrection, for example, or an ascension, or the distribution of the Holy Spirit that we celebrated last Sunday. Today, however, the church commemorates not a person or an event, but a teaching, a doctrine. There are very few places like that in the entire church calendar. A way of uh, understanding our God and our faith. Everything has led to this central feast from Advent to Pentecost, and everything now follows from it, from Pentecost to Advent again. In many Anglican churches, we call it Trinity Tide, all the Sundays that follow from here on until Advent. It's like light, Life in the light of the Trinity its the longest season of the year and in some ways the most important. Archimedes uh, said famously one time, you give me a lever long enough and you give me a fulcrum on which to place it and I'll move the world with the thing. Well, this is like the fulcrum of the year and the center on which everything balances and moves and balances everything today, Trinity. So, uh, uh, in spite of its kind of centrality, Trinity is not a word that appears uh, in the Bible. What we have in the Bible are like images. At the beginning of time uh, stands God the Creator Almighty, you'll see it in Genesis chapter 1, whose spirit broods over the face of the deep like a mother hen over her nest, who creates all things through the power of his word. We've got creator and word and spirit in some kind of dynamic interrelationship. And the grammar employed in Genesis 1 is plural. At the end of time, as we see in our New Testament text for today, we've got the holy, holy, holy sounding in the middle of heaven. And uh, uh, the holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come who's revealed by the Spirit, who rules always as kind of as a, as, a, as a lamb. We've got Creator, Word, and Spirit once again in a kind of dynamic image. And we have images like the text from uh, Isaiah today. It's almost as if like the curtain gets pulled back and you get a picture of the kinds of things that go on in the heart of in the middle of heaven. Our Lord is forever holy, 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 we read attended by the seraphim, forever the owner and creator of all things, our creator. Our Lord is forever extending out like the fiery coal of forgiveness, forever redeeming, forever making us new. He is our savior and redeemer. And our Lord is forever coursing through the world, enlisting us in his cause, calling and sending us. He makes the world new by the men and women that he makes new. Ah, the Holy Spirit. Whom shall I send, he pleads. And who will go for us? Again, the grammar is plural in passages like these. Or in images like we find in, in our gospel text for today. I'm going to the one who sent me, Jesus says. I go to the Father. If I go, I will send to you the Helper. The Helper will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, he says. All that God the Father is, all that God the Father has is given to the Son. And all that the Son is and has is owned and declared by the Spirit. We have a movement all throughout the Scriptures. We've got images that are just like this. We have a kind of triune poet to quote a sonnet that Rick sent us in our email inboxes this last week. Maybe you read it too. It's a sonnet by Malcolm Geit. Malcolm Geit. A triune poet who sounds three notes from a single tone. That's what uh, Rick sent to us. C.S. Lewis said uh, one time, In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life. Almost a kind of drama, Lewis said. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, he said, a kind of dance, C.S. Lewis. So the language of Trinity, I mean, we've got Trinity Sunday, we've got Trinity Tide following. uh, The language of Trinity emerges in the 3rd and 4th centuries as the best and brightest Christian minds gathered in places like Nicaea and Constantinople to ask themselves, holy cow, what have we just seen? Who was this Jesus that that we have come to know through these years? What have we seen? They lacked language for it. They talked. They recognized the kind of plurality in these sort of images. Images. They saw a kind of like multiplicity and dynamism. There was a you know nothing static, but kind of a kind of a dance. They they thought. They talked about a they talked about a, a trinity eventually, a triad in Latin. It's it's worth noting, and um, if you remember much of anything today, it could be good that you remember that. That the, that the language that eventually held the day and that we have to this very day at Restoration Anglican Church, uh, long before... Uh, it, it came from Africa and from uh, African minds. It was hatched in African spirits and brains long, long before Canterbury was ever a thing and the world had ever heard of Anglicanism or Lutheranism or anything of the sort. It was Africans who taught the Christian world how to think carefully and theologically about about the Bible and about these things. Before our European ancestors could barely string together two intelligent sentences about the Christian theology, Africa taught us how to think about these things. People like Tertullian, uh, to whom we owe the language of Trinity. He was sometimes called the founder of Western Christian theology but he was born in Tunisia, in North Africa, and uh, people like Cyprian and Origen, and Athanasius and Augustine, they're all Africans uh, who gave us the earliest theological formulation of our faith in co- concepts and language that survive to this very day. And it runs something like this. There is no God Almighty there is no creator, no sovereign in heaven, except the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus. It's the only God there is. The one who loved the world and gave His only Son to redeem it. The one who sends the world—not to sends the Son—not to condemn it, but to redeem it and to love it. At the heart of all things, Trinity Sunday should make us should make us acknowledge stands one who loves us as Father at the heart of all things. And a Father more perfect than anything that we've ever known. Maybe you haven't known such a good Father who gives himself entirely for your wholeness, entirely for our well-being. There's no tyrant in heaven, you see, hiding behind some rock ready to jump out and bite you. There's no tyrant in heaven. There is only the one whom Jesus has taught us to call Abba, our Daddy. Jesus called him Daddy, and uh, he teaches us to call him Daddy, too. There's love at the center of the universe, we should remember on Trinity Sunday. There's relationship awaiting us there, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only Creator God there is. And there is no Redeemer. There's no, uh, just bear with me for a moment, there's no Redeemer, no Christ No savior except the eternal Son of God, the Alpha and the Omega, the bright morning star, by whom and through whom and for whom all things exist. You see, there's no a halfway savior in the Bible. It doesn't exist. Who offers half promises or half redemption. There's only the one who speaks worlds into being who is himself the creator and sustainer of all things. This Jesus, C.S. Lewis said, is the self-expression of the Father. He is, Lewis said, what the Father has to say. If you have seen me, Jesus said himself, you have seen the Father. And if you've got the Father, man, you've you've got the whole deal. And there is no Holy Spirit of God except the one who flows from this Father and this son, and their loving heart. There's no, uh, you know, like spooky, unpredictable force, uh, whatever you think of Star Wars, I mean, there's no uh, spooky force somewhere in the world that could creep you out. Some, there's sometimes good and sometimes not so much that may do us harm as, as well as blessing. At the heart of all there is, there is instead a kind of, a kind of love language There's a kind of wooing, you might say, a kind of tenderness, a compassionate spirit of this God, of this savior, who lives only to glorify Jesus and to draw us into relationship with him, draw us to his embrace. Rick mentioned that I'm a a retired Lutheran pastor and missionary, actually, and so uh, like one of my heroes is Luther, and he said, he, t- he described the interrelationship of, uh, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this way. He said, We could never attain to the knowledge of the Father's favor and grace except through the Lord Christ, who is a, a mirror of the Father's heart. But about Christ, we could know nothing if the Holy Spirit had not revealed it to us. I mean, this is what we confess Sunday by Sunday. Once again today, you listen for it, and you'll hear it. We confess Sunday by Sunday to to believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Every Sunday in that sense is Trinity Sunday, really. I mean, that's maybe not so liturgical, Rick, but it's true, I think. Every Sunday is kind of a Trinity Sunday, you might say. Julian, that famous uh, Catholic and Anglican, Saint Julian of Norwich said one time, She wrote a book called Revelations of Divine Love. What a cool book. And uh, she said this, The Trinity suddenly filled my heart with the greatest joy, and I understood that in heaven, it will be like that forever for those who come there. For the Trinity is God, and God is the Trinity. The Trinity is our maker and protector. The Trinity is our dear friend, Our everlasting joy and bliss through our Lord Jesus Christ, where Jesus is spoken of, Julian said, the Holy Trinity is to be understood. So I spent uh, my career, before I got retired and sat in the back of the church, I spent my career as a missionary. And I've traveled here and there around the world, gosh, from the jungles of the Amazon to to the arid steppes of the Mongolian plains, all over the place. And I've... I've seen all kinds of things, all kinds of people who believe all kinds of things about God. You cannot imagine how extraordinary this God of the Bible is among the world's religions. I tell you, it is without equal. It's easy to imagine a God of stone. Maybe you've met people, I have, maybe you've met people like that too, who who kind of think God is like a stone, all lifeless and unchangeable that you could maybe you know like carve out of a piece of basalt and then put a nose on it and put it up on a shelf in your living room to sort of keep an eye on things. A kind of unmoved mover, maybe. All philosophical and arid and dispassionate, cold. But this God, the God of the Bible, is not the, not the unmoved mover. This God is like the most moved mover, you might say, who's moved into our world, in fatherly love, to take into himself our brokenness and uh, ruin, and to redeem all things by his loving purpose, and then to walk at our side forever. No stone, but the picture and source of life itself. It's easy to imagine a kind of rigidly hierarchical God. The world is filled with people who think about God this way with some big cheese up at the top and some throne room somewhere, and lots of lesser beings that run things on his behalf, as if descending up and down the rungs of a ladder. And then on the lower rungs, when you get to unlikely and, you know, kind of of out-of-the-way places like Minneapolis, all you've got left is a little bit of God, right? The God of the Bible is just the antithesis of hierarchies in heaven. It's the antithesis of heavenly hierarchy. The one and three is also the three and one. And where one is found, all of God is present. You just think about that when you come to the table again in just a few minutes. And hear again these words, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. It's not as if you will receive a little bit of God. There's no hierarchy. On some lower rung of heaven's ladder somehow. A little bit of God doesn't exist, whether here at the table or in the words of the absolution or in the waters of baptism. He who receives me, Jesus said, receives the one who sent me, the whole package. It's easy to imagine a magical kind of God. I think this is probably the most, uh, in my experience, the most uh, kind of common misunderstanding of God in, in the world. A magical kind of God, a spirit maybe that You know, like lives in a local river or mountain, maybe, or that you might manipulate to do good to you if you treat him well. Or maybe a tribal kind of God. Oh, boy, there's lots of folks that think that way, too. Or a political God who, like, conveys their magical favors in return for your allegiance. You know that you've got a tribal God on your hands when he has lost the capacity to surprise you because he always thinks like you. I remember uh, reading a book when I was in college uh, by uh, that wonderful Anglican theologian, J.B. Phillips, and it was called, uh, Your God is Too Small. It's one of those kind of books that's worth the price of admission just for the title. Your God is Too Small. Gods like these are like too small. The God of the Bible is the three-in-one, the one-in-three. No other religion understands life and faith in this way. But now uh, in conclusion, um, if you're looking for a conclusion, (laughs) let me just offer a few few, uh, uh, thoughts about living in a Trinitarian kind of way, Trinitarian living. To live in a Trinitarian kind of way after a Sunday like, Today, to live in a Trinitarian sort of way is just to live as if these things are true. As if the Spirit that dwells in you, that you meet in prayer and at the table and at worship and in baptism, as if the Spirit is the Spirit of God Most High Almighty. As if the Son who has uh, redeemed you and spoken words of forgiveness into your heart were as trustworthy and dependable as the stars in the sky. I mean, like, he, he named those stars. He hung them into the heaven with, his, with the word of his mouth. As if the Father who loves you were to become like the very fabric and core of your universe. Let me suggest three, uh, three hallmarks of a Trinitarian lifestyle. First, Trinitarian people should live humbly. Luther said one time as people were talking about the Trinity, he said, if reason disturbs you and questions arise like how is this possible, respond with humility, I do not know. Our Trinitarian people should find it easy to say, I do not know. (laughs) There is mystery at the center of the Trinitarian universe. Maybe we don't have things all boxed, so boxed up as we might have thought. Secondly, a, Trinity, a Trinitarian people should live encouraged. We may consider ourselves at home, whatever our, our outward circumstances. The universe itself, in spite of its occasional terrors, is no longer threatening or punitive or scary in that sense. It is the Father's creation, Abba's home, and our loving home. Jesus has moved into our neighborhood, as St. John said, And with him, the holy trinity of heaven. And finally, a a Trinitarian people should live purposefully, on purpose. The world itself is going someplace. It is infused by the spirit of God, working out the purposes of God. And that's what a Trinitarian people will do too. Community, worship, faith, justice, surrender, love. These are the things that throb somewhere near the center of heaven. And they will echo somehow in a Trinitarian people too. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? A Trinitarian people will sometimes hear. The correct response is, here am I, send me. But now finally, in just a kind of an epilogue, let me just say that uh, we're not made Christians by understanding the nuances of this core doctrine, however important it is. We're not made Christians by, like, understanding it all. You ask Father Rick if he has the Trinity all figured out after his many years of study and service. I mean, it's pretty impressive. And yeah, I, know, I know Rick a little bit. He's gonna laugh. We're not made Christians by understanding these things exactly. We're, we're made Christians by relationship with this threefold God, by surrender to his loving heart, by yielding to his voice and by looking to Jesus. We don't need to comprehend this threefold God exactly. We are invited simply to trust in him. So now here comes a really Trinitarian way to conclude a sermon. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.